Hey, Final Fantasy fans. Just want to give you a heads up that this episode will contain spoilers from the entire game of Final Fantasy 16 throughout the episode, as well as quick back-to-back spoilers from Final Fantasies 5, 7, 9, 10, 14, Heaven's Word, 15, and Type 0 in the opening introduction very quickly. And then there's one more Final Fantasy 14, Heaven's Word spoiler around the hour four minute mark. Check out the episode description to see exact timestamps for each spoiler if you prefer to skip those parts. And with that in mind, welcome to the show. In this Michael Bay style smackdown where Clive turns into Ifrit. And that is leaves. the perfect description right there. A Michael Bay <laughs> style smackdown. The guy who ruined Transformers. <laughs> and Ninja Turtles. Welcome to the Final Fantasy Files, where we discuss all things Final Fantasy, from Titus to Vivi to Hoshifant to Galu to Class Zero to Noctis to Aerith. My name is Jolie Hales. And I'm Ernest DeLeon. And you may have picked up on a little bit of a theme amongst those names that we just said, which brings us to the topic of today's conversation, Everyone Who Dies in Final Fantasy Sixteen. <laughs> As we all know it, Final Fantasy 16 is the first M-rated game of the series, which is something I'm not completely crazy or sold about, but that's a topic for another discussion. I get it. I still love the game. And while being rated M most assuredly means that we can probably expect a lot of people to bite the dust, it's actually not uncommon for characters in Final Fantasy to die, as we know. Oh, yeah. There are many characters who bite the dust, kick the bucket, however you want to say it, including a lot of the main characters and even entire cities in Final Fantasies. Entire cities. And I would even say that at least a good number of them, the point of the story is that the main character bites the dust. So I think that's true. And... I kind of take issue with that in general. But again, topic for another discussion, because you're totally right. It seems like the entire thing is set up for that exact purpose. And when it comes to Final Fantasy 16, it does show a lot of deaths and it does kind of fall into that same motif, right? But the difference, I think, in Final Fantasy 16 is that a lot of those deaths, because it's rated M, are shown in their bloody splendor instead of you kill somebody and they disappear into like glitter dust. You know what I'm saying? It's the whole, like, when Mortal Kombat came to Nintendo versus Genesis, <laughs> right? When you hit somebody in Mortal Kombat on Nintendo, it was like sweat that flew off of them. Yep. And the Genesis just put everything in there, so. Yeah, that's a perfect way to describe it. And, yeah, I'm not, I'll be honest, I'm a more classic Final Fantasy player, so I wasn't a huge fan. I just, in general, I don't like gore and blood and guts and that kind of thing. But at the same time, I think a lot of, the way that it was utilized in Final Fantasy 16 was interesting, if I may say so. Also, I tend to want most likable characters to survive in many games. Yeah, but- and that's the thing with JRPGs, right? Like, and, and yes. the big difference between like American RPGs or Western RPGs and JRPGs. Like in Western RPGs, it's pretty common that the hero survives for many reasons. I think one of them is like, obviously like a business reason. If our hero survives and the franchise does well, you can keep releasing more games. Right. But in JRPG is a little bit different, right? The story is kind of encapsulated. Like, sure, 
there are recurring themes across all of the Final Fantasies, but they're each different stories, and they each take place in different places, right? Different worlds, different whatever, and there's just like an overarching theme. Right, so, so they don't need the character to survive. The way they see it is, if this character dies, it doesn't matter. We're not going to reuse them in another future installment. Anyway. Yeah, and I think that's my problem, honestly. And we'll get into this in more depth when we talk about the actual ending of Final Fantasy 16. But I keep expecting JRPG endings to be like Western game endings. And so then I'm often left so disappointed. But again, <laughs> yeah. we'll talk about that. I do think that a lot of the deaths that happened in Final Fantasy 16 were very well executed. No pun intended. Because I think that they made it very interesting in the build-up to the point of time that they die and so forth. But before I move on, I do need to say this conversation is obviously going to be filled with spoilers. So if you don't want to hear how people die or who dies or any of that information from Final Fantasy 16, then now's the time to push stop, play the game, come back and watch us later. So you've been warned. That's right. To be clear, this is absolutely not a spoiler-free podcast. And we're literally, for this discussion, going to go through every single death in the game of Final Fantasy 16, who it was, how they died, and it'll be interesting to see, frankly, how long that takes us. And then for our video viewers, be also forewarned that not only are you going to see a lot of spoilers, but you're going to see a lot of blood splatter back to back along with those spoilers. And I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to anyway, just in case there's some hypersensitive, like, weirdo or something out there looking to start a fight in our comments section or something. The only reason that we can nonchalantly go through this list is because the game is fiction, right? That's also the reason why this is kind of actually a hilarious list, if I may say so. But that said, you ready for this, Ernest? All the mm -hmm. deaths of Final Fantasy 16? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. Okay, here we go. First, the game opens up and there's obviously the fight between the Phoenix and Ifrit. But then right after that, we go straight into a bloody war scene where a number of soldiers from both the Iron Kingdom and the Domekian Republic die from sword stabs, axe chops, magic rock catapults, and so forth. So while they are unnamed characters, they are officially the first to die in Final Fantasy 16. And it only took a few minutes to get there. And then shortly after that, Biased. Biased. If you remember Clive's comrade, who is part of those four elite bearers sent by the Empire to kill Shiva. Biased. Biased. Bites the dust. Biased! Pretty much literally. Mm -hmm. As he is smashed by a boulder thrown from the Titan Shiva fight. And he is the first official character to die with a name and a voice actor. And it only happens again just a few minutes into the game. This reminds me so much of the... I don't know if you were a fan of The Walking Dead, at least. No, are you kidding? I can't handle blood and gore. There's no, so no, no. I was a huge fan of The Walking Dead TV series early on. There was a show that used to come on right after it. I think it was called Talking Dead. And they talked about the episode that you just watched. And oh, seriously? They had a segment in there called In Memoriam. <laughs> and they would talk about who died in that episode That's totally this whole thing whether it was a named character or just one of the zombies that you know took a baseball bat to the head or something it didn't matter oh my like gosh. everyone was covered in that in memoriam thing. that is totally what we're doing absolutely i love it okay so after the war scene then we move to phoenix gate as we know where a lot of shizzle goes down 
So we're sent back 13 years to flashbacks in Rosaria, where everything is nice and cheery for a bit. I mean, there's even this like warm glow you'll see in the lighting of those scenes. So we, we get th this comfortable feeling until we get to Phoenix Gate. We ride for Phoenix Gate tomorrow. There we will listen to the words of our ancestors, as tradition dictates. And there, the first two people to die are the Rosarian guards at the gate who have their throats slit by imposters from the Empire during the carriage inspection when it starts to get kind of ominous there. And then next, Sir Wade and young Joshua then kill a bunch of Imperial soldiers trying to get Joshua to safety. Fall back, your highness! He's not one of us! And then the Imperial captain and his soldiers are taken out by a teenage Clive and Lord Commander Murdoch, who also then goes on to take out the Knight of the Blinding Dawn, Imperial Dragoon. Next, in the act that causes blood to splatter all over young Joshua's face in the trailer clips we all saw before being able to actually play the game, Archduke Elwyn is beheaded in front of his young son by an Imperial soldier under the command of a ducal shield. You think he was beheaded, right? You can't 100% tell, but doesn't it look like he's beheaded? Like his head like rolls. I didn't think he was at first, but my husband's like, oh, he was totally beheaded. I couldn't tell just by looking at it. I think that was on purpose, but to me, it seems like in certain areas, they definitely adopted their rated M thing. Yeah. And in other areas, they try to like not go too far. Right. Which is smart. And I think this was one of those areas. They implied it, right? But did it actually happen? I think it did. It's yeah. just hard. I agree. And to your point, it's like, okay, we're rated M, but these are still... There's going to be a lot of original Final Fantasy fans who aren't necessarily used to seeing decapitations play out on screen. Yeah. There's like fighting and then there's like terrorist behavior yeah like they're trying <laughs> yeah. to walk that line even though they have a right rhythm. well i mean in that scene they literally blood from his own father splatters all over this young boy's face it's oh, not yeah. like it's free of blood splatter and violence it's pretty intense so i i'm actually happy with the way they portrayed it as far as you know i can deal with blood and gore i guess i didn't want to see like a decapitated corpse or anything like that oh no yeah that would have been a little bit much but JRPG, right? We're going to draw you in. We're going to really attach you to these characters. And then... And then we're going to behead them in front of you. <laughs> that's that's how JRPG is. I know. I know. I feel like they're also... They were trying to be like Game of thrones -y. Yeah. And now I never watched Game of Thrones because, I, again, I can't handle violence. When I was trying to put my thumb on it early on, I was like, okay, this is sort of a combination of like a light Souls type game, Mortal Kombat and like Tales of series, right? Like all put together, which was an interesting kind of approach here, but I, I think it works. Okay, so Archduke Elwin is dead. Blood is splattered all over young Joshua's face. Mm -hmm. And given that young Joshua just watched his dad get his head chopped off, we think, understandably, Joshua then goes into a bit of an emotional meltdown and he sprouts some fiery phoenix wings and in turn burns a few more Imperial soldiers alive in the process. Mm -hmm. But that isn't all. 
Soon, Joshua goes full fiery phoenix, burning everyone. This is the good guys and the bad guys in his immediate vicinity, completely to a crisp, including poor Sir Tyler, the redheaded Rosarian knight who had accompanied young Clive on his goblin adventure, and ironically had just recently had his wounds healed by the very powers of the phoenix that then just killed him minutes afterwards. So yeah, when you let children play with fire, right? This is the <laughs> lesson here. And I like the way they tell the story in some of these things. Like, yes. you know, you obviously know that he's a child and something traumatic has happened to him at that point, but he's a child, right? He doesn't know how to process things. He can't control his anger, his rage. So that's why totally. this thing just went completely from one to a hundred. Totally off the rails. Yeah. Collateral damage like crazy because he's a child, right? Exactly. And it's interesting, though, because in the fight with Ifrit, he kind of gains his composure back a little bit. I have to save them! Which shows that, yes, he's a child, but he's a wise child. Right. Very well. I'm ready. And then next, it's Clive's turn to burn people alive, icon style, as he unknowingly primes into Ifrit for the first time, burning Lord Commander Murdoch to ashes in awe as he watches this second icon of fire appear before his very eyes. Second icon of fire? That's impossible. And then Afrit and Phoenix then duke it out as we've been talking about. They kill a few more Rosarian soldiers. In fact, these Rosarian soldiers are trying to get up and get to safety. You can tell they're injured. They're helping right. each other out. And then Ifrit lands on them basically and crushes them to death. Kind of unfortunate for them. And then we think that the Phoenix is murdered in a bloody punch out and tear out, which first time I played it, it was a little much for me, but you know, I get it. There's just the nasty sound effects. They did such a good job with sound design in this whole game. And it really- Yeah, the entire thing was just yeah. spectacular. In that, it was so good, so much better than 15. It was hard for me to watch like a young child as a bird being torn apart. But it also foreshadowed so much like seeing two of these icons battling like what the collateral damage looks like because you see that yeah. throughout the game later. Like the whole place just yeah. <laughs> like wherever they're fighting. They, like they, they go just, into space with Bahamut they, and <laughs> they just tear everything to tear everything to pieces. Yeah. The next person to die is actually a wounded Ducal Shield, who, I don't know if you remember this, he reaches up to his Imperial Captain for help, and then the Imperial Captain just stabs him. So, real good leadership there. Mm -hmm. And then to top off all the deaths at Phoenix Gate, the Imperial soldiers then slit the throats of Annabella's two maidservants for good measure. So at Phoenix Gate alone, we have three main characters who are killed, along with a slew of soldiers and servants, both Rosarian and Imperial. Lots of happy times at Phoenix Gate. All right. Then we fast forward 13 years later, back to the war grounds that we left. And just after Bias has died, Beast. then the next guy to die is Avis, Clive's mustached comrade, who is killed by a slow motion blood splatter axe thrown. And when I saw that, I was like, really? Slow motion, blood splatter? Okay. 
I see what this is going to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, I think they toned it down with the blood splatter violence after the first five hours of story. Yeah, it, it reminded me a lot of, there's a game series called, I think it's called Sniper Elite or something like that. But it's one where you fire and then they slow it down and then show you like almost like an x-ray view. With the violence? Of the bullet hitting the person, like where it hit them and what damage it caused. And it's crazy. <laughs> I know some people are like, yeah, that was awesome. You know, epic blood splatter in slow motion to each their own. For me, it kind of made me laugh. But so Avis is gone, having been axed. And then Clive and his leader, Tiamat, they kill a bunch of Iron Crusaders just in time for Clive to turn his sword on Tiamat himself in order to save Shiva's dominant, who he now realizes is his childhood friend, Jill. So then Tiamat bites the dust. Yeah. Remember, Tiamat is also a recurring... Yes, Tiamat is a name in Final Fantasies. I think he was an icon. I think he's one of like the summons. Either that or at least a boss, right, that you fight. Yeah, I remember recognizing Tiamat, but he's not typically human. Betray the Holy Empire? So then more Iron Crusaders are killed. Now, I like this one. Sweet slow motion lightning storm effects. Because oh! Sid mm-hmm. shows up on the scene and he turns out to be the dominant of Ramu. So he zaps everybody with lightning in slow motion, which is pretty rad. And then we get a few minutes of relief from death when we go to the hideaway until Benedicta then picks up the killing again in the woods when she stabs a villager man who, I guess he ratted out his fellow villagers or something. I had a hard time understanding who he ratted out. And well, they were about to leave him alone, apparently. And Benedicta was walking away and he's like, well, haven't I proven loyal? Like, Mm -hmm. aren't you going to do something for me? And then she goes back and she not only just stabs him with the sword, but we get like a personal point of view of his death with... Again, gut-rattling sound effects. It's, again, in the first five hours of the game, it's pretty bloody and pretty graphic. Then Clive and Sid kill a bunch of Walud royalist soldiers in the forest. Let's get this over with, then. I don't know if you remember this, the mocap action that they had in the first fight in the forest with the Waludian soldiers. And then they kill another royalist soldier who is guarding the door of the village prisoners in Lost Wing, like in the cellar. This man's gonna die if we don't get into a healer. Enough of your barking, dog! Sid basically stabs that guy in order to free the villagers. And then Benedicta kills yet another one of her own Waludian royalist soldiers, a patrolman. She stabs him because he leads Sid, Clive, and Gav straight to their camp location. Mercy. He begs for mercy right before, and she doesn't care. It's great. Yeah, she just stabs her own guy, which goes to show, like, what kind of a character she is. Like, she does not care. No. Right? If you cross her, then you're done. Yep. So then Sid and Clive go to the Cairnorvent Imperial Fortress, And there, a lot of people die, most of them unnamed. There's Imperial soldiers who are originally killed by the Walud Royalist soldiers who invade the fortress before we even arrive, so we see a bunch of bodies everywhere. I found the Imperial garrison right where the Royalists left. And then the Walud Royalist soldiers are then killed by us, by Clive, as he tears through the fortress looking for the dominant of fire. And then Joshua who's also in the fortress, and he's now grown up 
right? We don't know it's Joshua at this point. We just see a hooded figure. He burns a few more royalist soldiers as he and Yote escape at the fortress. So more burning alive. Which is a common theme. Which makes sense because there's two icons of fire and they're the main characters. Mm -hmm. And then after Benedicta loses her powers to Clive, which I thought was a really interesting scene, her loyal right-hand man, Geralf, who I actually really liked, I thought he was a super nice guy and I didn't want to see him croak, but he does. He takes an ax to the head by bandits. And then everybody around them in their party, all the other royalists also take axes to the head, basically, or to the chest or the back by these bandits who come upon them in the forest. So it's interesting how this pack of super soldiers is just taken out by bandits and they leave Benedicta all by herself. And that's what causes her to prime and lose control of Garuda. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I can only assume that all of those bandits die when she primes by a tornado wind effect or something. I watched that scene frame by frame and could not see an actual point of death, but you can only assume the bandits then were probably blown into trees or rocks or something. And then Garuda becomes that raging tornado, but alas, she doesn't last long as she is killed by Ifrit when Clive then primes Again, without control, still doesn't really mm-hmm. know he's a freed at this point. And then when Garuda dies, of course, Benedicta dies with her, leaving Sid to say a final farewell and lay that pendant on her chest. This can't be what you wanted. So that's the end of Benedicta, who was actually a really interesting character to me. So then we have another war really quick, the Battle of Velenus Tor, where Imperial soldiers and Waludian soldiers spend time killing each other. All while more Imperial soldiers who are chasing Gav then bite the dust in the woods who are killed by Clive and Sid in attempt to rescue Gav. But if it wasn't for you two, my sniffing deers would be over. Then the next deaths involve our first introduction to the Crystal Curse, right? So that's when we see the suffering overtake the bearers. the, The bearers curse? Yeah, the bearers curse. They call it the Crystal Curse. It could be the bearers curse. Yeah, I couldn't figure out what it was because it seemed like with some of the dominants that were bearers like Clive, they would have that happen, but it seemed like it happened to obviously bearers that weren't dominants, but I don't remember ever seeing that happen to a dominant that wasn't a bearer. I think all dominants are bearers. Are they? Yeah, because dominant power is magic. It's anyone who can wield magic. Okay. Right. And I think that dominants also are struck by the curse, but they have like stronger resistance to how long it takes for it to overcome them because they're just stronger in general. Okay, that could make sense. Yeah, I think that's what it was. That means that those bearers who are constantly using magic all the time, it overtakes them quickly because they're not as resistant yeah. to it. But the other thing that I found interesting about these deaths and how they happen is there were several times when Gav or Clive showed up somewhere and saw people who they expected to have to fight already dead. And they were like, what is going on here? Why are these people dead? And why are the Waluders over here? And the thing that was really awesome about this game is that layered in with the normal Final Fantasy stuff, there was like this political undercurrent of geopolitical alliances and backstabbing. And so people were dying for all kinds of random reasons. And And the characters didn't even know why. And they didn't even know why. They would show up expecting a fight. And they found like a bunch of murdered people. And they're like, what happened here? And for somebody who has trouble typically 
in like movies with multiple different players. I can't remember like who is who and the names. And I really appreciated the whole Vivian character right. and how she had the lay of the land or the state of the realm. Oh man, she knew everything. I could go back to that all the time. I could also look at the character names on the, the little cast sheet mm-hmm. that she has. I loved that. It helped me keep track of the characters and what was going on politically. But then I also liked how when somebody died, their picture like blackened out. Right. So you knew who was alive versus dead. And that was super helpful. As a matter of fact, I didn't figure out for a, a while what the Willooters had to do with any of this stuff. Yeah, I was so confused. I was like, what is with the royalists? And then finally I was like, oh, that makes sense now. But you didn't know what were they doing? Because yeah. of the groups, they were the most isolated, right? They were off on their own little island. It's like, why are they invading everybody? Like, it didn't make any sense at first. Yeah, and not even invading. They weren't sending like armies, almost like special forces, like behind the scenes type stuff, right? Yeah. Finally, you figured out what was going on. But it was just one of those like, what is going on in this game? Everyone is fighting with everyone. And it was just great. Like, Yeah. By the end, if you're paying attention, and I had to read Vivian's stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You understand it at that point. So right. I think they brought it back around quite well. Whereas I think in some past Final Fantasies, that wasn't as well executed. And so I ended up being quite confused about the geopolitical like issues that were happening in the world or oh, yeah. what was going on with the villains. Still loved the game, but was like, okay... Somebody needs to explain this to me because I don't understand. Yeah, Vivian was a good addition because I love Final Fantasy lore, but there's some people who really love the lore. Yeah. And that's their whole thing. And so they had a place to go and just like soak it all up. You could spend hours sponge away just talking to Vivian and looking through all her stuff. And Harpocrates as well. Harpocrates too. Yeah, the tomes. Welcome home, Clive. So going back to the game, it is that Crystal's Curse that we're first introduced to, right? Mm -hmm. At the Abbey in Rosaria. And I think we see two actually succumb to the curse at that point in time. And then we realize there's a cost to magic. Their bodies petrify till all that remains is stone and pain. And so they are cast aside. It's not too long after that that we reunite with Hannah Murdoch and kind of a nice reunion. There's some awkwardness and sadness with it as well, but we leave and it was overall positive. We got a cool new outfit for Clive, but it's not long after that that the Lord Commander Murdoch's wife also dies along with the entire village of Eastpool Mm -hmm. when they're killed by Imperial soldiers when Clive's mother, Annabella, apparently discovers that that village has been hiding those who are still loyal to Rosaria and so... She sends soldiers in to take them out, mm-hmm. which in turn then causes Clive and Jill to then take out those Imperial soldiers because they come upon them just as they're finishing the job and they murder those who were the murderers. You'll pay for this. Ah, we've got a live one. It reminded me a lot of in Final Fantasy VI, the main villain is Kefka Palazzo, right? He pops Your up. Your favorite. He's my great. favorite. Yeah, I actually have a painting of him up on my wall here. In my opinion, the best villain of all time, of anything. Kefka was one of those crazy people who would poison an entire city's water supply because he was bored. Yeah. Right? Like, now, granted, Annabella had a different reason. But when you think about it, right? Like, yes, it was harboring people that were loyal to Rosaria. It was also harboring a lot of bearers. But that entire thing posed no threat to her whatsoever. Right. So this was simply murdering an entire city because she could. Because she wanted to. That's all it was. And so if you weren't convinced that she was a villain yet, this right here did it. Like you knew at this point. Right. This is like a big villain in the game. Yeah. Well, I thought at the very beginning of the game, I wondered if she was going to be the big baddie. 
I was like, ooh, Annabella, this is at least the big mortal baddie, right? And it turns out she was a baddie, yep. but she wasn't the baddie, which I also thought was really interesting. Yeah. And we'll have to do an entire episode on Annabella because there's so much to talk about with her. She's fascinating. Oh, absolutely. Now, at this point in the game, it's a good time to take on some of the side quests. And if you do some of the side quests and there's more deaths that happen, one of those people to die is Randall. I don't know. You probably don't remember Randall. It's Albin, the postmaster's friend from the hideaway. He's killed outside of Lost Wing by Beastman when he tries to draw them away from his group. And then Clive is unable to get there in time, unfortunately. Sorry, Randall. Looks like I was too late. And then in some more side quests, Clive also takes out a few nameless bandits at the Golden Stables. And then some of the most memorable side quest deaths take place just beyond Northreach. I'm sure you remember these. These mm -hmm. really stood out to me. One such side quest starts out with two unnamed bearers being purposefully killed for sport by the pet wolf of a nobleman named, I think it's Benoit, and his young son, Dennis. You are the entertainment, nothing more. And in the spirit of what goes around comes around, when Clive kills their pet wolf, the father and the son then attempt to tame another wolf, only to be attacked and killed by it off camera. So we hear the screams, and then if you go to that location afterwards, you see the blood on the ground. We don't actually see the death, but mm -hmm. there's definitely a moral in that side quest that we should talk about at another point in time, too, when we dive deeper into these side quests. Such attitudes don't always go unpunished. If you're playing the game, you probably are already figuring out at this point what's going on with the bearers. Right. Right. But I think this is the one that kind of... Really solidifies that. If you're unsure... This pulls it all together, and you know exactly what's happening at this point. It's totally true. That's why the deaths were, I think, pretty important in this game. May their burden finally be lifted. Furthermore, to drive this whole idea of the mistreatment of Bearer's home, another side quest death happens to a bear named Chloe, who we don't actually meet alive. We just see her succumb to the petrification curse underneath a windmill. Someone napping on the job. We then apparently learned that it was because her child master, Lisette, required her to do magic over and over and over again for entertainment. Well, why did you already turn into a rock? I only made you do a bit of magic. And then the result is a very strong-worded and beyond-deserved lecture from Clive to the little girl, Lisette. Absolutely deserved. And without that brand, she would have been just another girl. Somebody's daughter. Just like you. Dad said bearers don't have parents. They do. It's interesting how you see like the behavior earlier, like the deaths of the bearers before the dog thing, right? And you're like, oh, this is horrible, right? You, right. you already know something bad's going on. But when you get to the point of the dog and then Lisette specifically, now you see the consequences of the parents, right, passing that kind of stuff on to the next generation. Exactly. So it's telling multiple stories. It's not just the death and not just the horrible side effect of it, but you also see the pollution of future generations. It's horrible what she was doing. But what's worse is that someone showed her that that was okay. Raised her this way. Right. And that's why it's interesting because Clive gives the lecture to Lisette and you actually hope that it 
makes a difference because nobody's ever told her these things before. Yeah. Right. So she's not the villain in that side quest. The parents of Mm -hmm. her are the villain because if she had different parents who raised her differently, she'd be a loving child who would most likely would have no responsibility in anybody's death as a child. Absolutely. I'm so sorry, Chloe. And it's interesting because I always try to figure out where do the writers draw the inspiration from? There are so many stories throughout human history where things like this happened and some of these continue to happen. Yeah. Like, obviously, it could be an amalgamation of all of them, but it could, it probably is because unfortunately, human nature tends to repeat itself over history, right? right? So you can point to a number of different times in all across the globe of these things happening and human beings being discarded as not being human beings. Like that scene where the mother comes in who's just given birth to a bear and she's like, oh, I gave it away. The boy I carried for nine long moons, a bloody bearer. Oh, you poor thing. You gave it to the constables then. Just left it at the garrison. I let them deal with it. She just was pregnant for nine months as a mother who has Two kids and gone through two pregnancies for nine months and they're miserable pregnancies. That like really struck a chord with me because I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't just give away your child like that. Couldn't wait to be rid of the blasted thing. Been wanting it gone since the moment I found out. Well, it's all dealt with now. So no harm done, eh? It was almost over the top, like a little too much for me. The writers were excellent in this game. Right. Because a point like the one you just made, because obviously I'm a father of two young kids, too. Now, I didn't carry the kids. Right. But I couldn't imagine a mother, you know, going all the way through the pregnancy and then seeing that their kid is anything. Right. Like in this case, it was a bearer. But you can link this to like a kid coming out with some kind of birth defect or something. Right. Just discarding them because of something like that. So like the writers, again, found something that they could like take this tiny little plot point but boy with a certain audience that thing would hit home for most people who haven't had a child yeah they would get the point but those who have them it's like whoa like they can feel the point although i will say from a writing perspective that the callous attitude of the mother was a little unbelievable to me because if she's a human being who loves her other child it shows that she has like human relationships then even if they discard their bearer child to me she should at least have some sense of mourning for that you weren't my brother was he no but you'll have one soon enough you just have to be patient like at least mourn the idea that it was a bearer child instead of being so nonchalant okay we'll get you another one that part didn't ring true to me but i understand what they were trying to do with the theming so I think if I were to rewrite that, I just would add maybe some mourning for the fact that it was a bear. Like maybe show that she was like so sad instead of just so dismissive that, oh, I gave birth after nine months of pregnancy. Oh, how annoying was that? You know, it's like, uh, that's more than annoying. That's like, oh, absolutely. If you really have those opinions about bears, you should be like devastated, devastated. But also there's a counterpoint that I think these beliefs that were causing all these people to die, specifically the bearers. We're very cultish in nature. Yes. Right? It was like a widespread cult. It was so ingrained in them that it could possibly like disconnect them from reality, right? In that kind of mourning sense. Yeah. Again, like this thing was just so well written and these deaths were so purposeful, especially the way they showed them that I don't think the story would have moved or carried the weight it did without them. Those bearers you killed, they were people. They felt fear and pain. 
Just as you do. Back on the main stories, then one of the dame's prostitutes named Tatien mm-hmm. dies along with an imperial soldier named Yannick. And they are both basically discovered dead after having been killed by wolves, just as the soldier was apparently going to propose marriage to Tatien. So that's part of main storyline. And then when Sid, Clive, and Jill go into the mines at Drake's head, Mother Crystal, they take out a swath of Imperial soldiers, some human, some turn to Kashik. And then at the heart of the crystal, I didn't know if I should even include this, I probably shouldn't, but Clive turned Ifrit kills Typhon. Remember that freaky boss with no legs? Like the torso. Yes, the yes. torso he kills the torso. Even the Akashic, right, play an important yes. plot point in here. They die, obviously, right? Because we kill them throughout mm-hmm. this adventure, but just several times throughout the game, there's other characters who are like they're trying to tell you that it's not their fault or it's almost like it's yeah. not their choice. Like they've basically become zombies, right? Yeah. It's, it's not their control. It's not their fault, right? You're torn between like, I know I need to kill these things because I need to get through. But like some of them were just unfortunate victims of ether floods. And I think they allude to some of that in their dialogue. Like if I remember right, there was some sympathy expressed by Jill and, yeah, Sid there is. and Clive in Drake's head. Several characters along the way give sympathy for that. Because you can't know he was still a man. A man who drowned in ether. It's no way for anyone to go. And then, sadly, ugh, Sid dies after sustaining fatal injuries as Ramu when three like beams of energy sent from Ultima, I would assume, then strike Ramu in front of the crystal's heart, and that ends up being Sid's undoing, which... Mm-hmm. Is super sad and a bummer for the game because the tone of the game really changes when Sid's no longer in it, but also kind of necessary for him to leave that legacy to have him bite the dust in that way. And if it's an outlaw the world needs to help it break free, stop. Please. I can think of none better than you. There's a lot more death right after that. Hugo Kupka slash Titan. He seeks revenge on Sid by attacking the hideaway with his Damekian soldiers where they massacre a large number of people there. And most of the people who die are those you interacted with in side quests Mm -hmm. in the hideaway. So we're talking Kenneth, the kitchen head, Gaoler, the jailer. The Chocobo Keeper lady, who I don't think has a name. Almoner, who's the hospice guy. And then Bahumil, the chief botanist. Martel, the garden hand. Glenn, the courier. Albin, the postmaster. And then apparently the parents of the twins, who I don't know that we actually meet. And then a lot of other NPCs all killed in this raid on the hideaway at this point. But a lot of them also survived. A lot of the characters that you interact with in a real way, main story-wise, tend to survive all the way through to the new hideaway later. But lots of killing going on. And then that's also when Gav takes a knife to the eye by that yellow jacket crony of Hugo Kupka. I don't know what his name is. I don't think it's mentioned. Lord Kupka has a message for your leader. If only he knew where to send it. So the yellow jacket guy like slashes Gav's eye and then Gav stabs him and and kills him in Mm -hmm. the hideaway massacre as well. 
And that's what actually moves us five years later. We have another time jump in the game. And it puts Clive in his early 30s. And the first to die after this time jump are a bunch of Demekian soldiers. Basically, Kupka's private guard killed by Clive and Jill on a mission to free that group of ungrateful bearers. And then things get kind of dark at the Rosarian Abbey at that point, where all the suffering bearers die trying to protect the abbot from the Black Shields. And in turn, then Clive and Jill go and kill all of the Black Shields Mm -hmm. and the Imperial soldiers as well. And they also find out there that the abbot himself does not survive. And a last suffering bearer is the final person in that scene to die who succumbs either to wounds sustained in the fight with the Black Shields or potentially to petrification due to the bearer's curse. It's hard to know how he dies. He looks pretty petrified. Mm-hmm. I assume that the more magic they used to try to protect the abbot would have also maybe sped up the effects of that curse, so it could have gone either way. He's gone. Then more Black Shields are taken out by Clive and Jill before reaching the gates of Alduil. And in one of the most horrifying scenes of the game, there's at least nine murdered bearers who are left like gruesomely hanging on display in Aldil. This was my mother's doing. Having been killed by the Black Shields under Annabella's orders, along with a number of villagers who were apparently either in the wrong place at the wrong time or maybe tried to protect the bearers or something or took on the Black Shield. That scene was pretty intense. Also, it's a little confusing why Annabella is doing this. The only explanation really given in the game is that she's being influenced by Ultima. And then Clive and Jill then join up with Wade, who apparently survived Phoenix Gate. They kill more Black Shields at the checkpoint near Aldul, and then they also take out the Knight of the Lasting Dark, who is a Mm -hmm. Black Shield dragoon. Yeah, the dragoons were interesting in this game. I've always loved dragoons in Final Fantasy. I mean, they've obviously been around for a very long time. But... Dragoons cannot die to fall damage, right? And that's one one of the reasons that Dragoon is one of like the best characters if you're playing <laughs> Final Fantasy is because the fact that they can jump so high and just stomp people, but if a normal person tried to jump off a cliff, they would die, right? So it was definitely interesting to fight Dragoons here to watch them jump around and the majority of the fight was this guy just jumping. And you were just like, stay still so I can hit you. And yeah. it took forever to stagger him because of that. Yeah. yeah, dragoons are classic to Final Fantasy. When we first see the dragoon at Phoenix Gate, I was like, yes, it's a dragoon! Right, look out! And the dragoons are interesting in Final Fantasy 16 because they're both good and bad, but they're from the same troop, right? Yeah. They play both the villain and the hero in a lot of ways because they're Dion's personal guard, basically, mm-hmm. but there's also apparently some who are on Imperial Black Shield types of missions. There's even one that you take out on a hunt who is so busy killing you that he has no idea that Dion is alive. And you're like fighting a good guy in that beast. Oh, that's right. That's Remember? right. Yeah. But because he won't listen to what you have to say, you have to kill him. And then he dies not knowing that his prince is still alive. Dion would have been glad to have you back at his side. And then Jill and Clive head over to the Drake's Breath Mother Crystal, which is the one on the island... So you kill a bunch of Iron Crusaders along the way. And then there's a young man and a young woman who are shown dead on the altar in front of the Mother Crystal Heart being like sacrificed by the Iron Crusaders. And I don't see a bear mark on them. So I'm guessing that maybe they were Rosarian, maybe captured like Jill or something, or maybe there were bears without the mark. I don't know. But there's like a young man and young woman who are dead in that scene. All to protect the children you took. Just as you took me. 
again, I'm always trying to look for like, where are the writers getting this from? Right. This was a common practice in pre-Columbian Mesoamerican cultures. Oh, yeah. Like the Aztecs. And these were coming from their own in society, right? So Yeah. And the two that are on the altar look like teenagers. Yeah. I don't think they wanted to show actual children on the altar. That might have been a little too much for gamers to handle. Right. But I think the implication is they kill young people who are innocent in these rituals. Yes. The resounding thing I think this game pulled together had multiple themes around cultish behavior, which this is definitely cultish behavior. So like, again, you get to the point where you're like, this is unbelievable that this is happening. But but it's in history books. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, right? But I think the thing here is the writers are trying to set the tone for you to say, okay, I absolutely believe this now because these people have bought whatever this is. In this case, it's this cult behavior at the altar, but different things throughout the game that mm -hmm. you're like, okay, I can see where they would do something that the normal among us or the normal thinking among us, right, would not do or would not be a part of. Well, it's interesting because it's easy to watch stuff like this and think, oh, that's not super believable. Like, I can't relate to it. Mm -hmm. But then if you think about it, World War II and the Holocaust itself wasn't very long ago. There are people still alive mm -hmm. who survived the Holocaust. So while it may seem a little far-fetched for some of us who just haven't been exposed to that side knowingly at least that side of human behavior, I don't think it's quite as fantastical in terms of theming as it may feel on its face. Yeah, no, absolutely. This has happened throughout human history, right? When you're talking yep. about pre-Columbian Mesoamerica, and that's very long to no one alive, right? But it's recorded history. And then I'm sure that even in prehistoric times, this stuff occurred, right? That's why I think the deaths tell so much because they're all little like prints in this tapestry that touches this overarching theme that you finally get to at the end of the game. I was forced to kill. You do it by choice. Many more Iron Crusaders are then killed. This is one of those moments where it's like, you just kind of accept what's happening, but you don't really get it. So the brown cloaked figure who is not Joshua, because apparently there's two brown cloaked figures. He's like some form of Ultima in some way, I'm guessing. He raises up a bunch of lava from the ground and that comes up and hits the Iron Crusaders and then they're merged into a monster called Liquid Flame. And then you kill Liquid Flame. Ah! Don't really get the whole merging thing or the brown hood figure, but that's a topic for another day. And then the final death inside of Drake's breath is when Jill stabs High Priest Imeron mm -hmm. through the heart in retribution for all he made her do when she was in his captivity. So this is like a real moment for Jill, right? This is something that she needs to accomplish personally herself, and she does it. I have killed the monster and become an outlaw. So then the next people to die are those in Rosalith, where Kupka attempts to draw Clive out by just attacking Rosalith mm -hmm. for that sole purpose because he wants to seek revenge on the death of Benedicta. So he orders his Domekian soldiers to kill all of the Imperial soldiers who are in control in Rosalith. And then he also apparently kills a lot of Rosalith citizens because their bodies are lying all over this broken city at this point. So we even see firsthand one soldier gets stabbed in the face. <laughs> and three others who are basically hacked to bits, so. Mm -hmm. 
fun times in Rosalith. So then, of course, Jill and Clyde take out a bunch of these Delmechian guards along the way to find Kupka. And then Gav personally slits the throat of one guard and then stabs another guard through the heart when he frees Clive from a quick stint in the jail cell over mm -hmm. there, right, in Rosalith. And then a bunch of more Kupkas. Private guard are killed by Clive, by Jill, Gav, and Torgal. When Torgal goes all, like, magic fest face mm -hmm. and destroys everyone in this cool scene. And then to top off that scene, a bunch of Waludian royalist soldiers then show up for, again, going back to what we were talking about, who knows what reason at this point, and they're promptly taken out by the party as well, mostly while Clive fights Kupka inside the castle and cuts off his hands. But Kupka does survive. Yes! The minute I saw Torgal as a grown dog, I was like, that's Fenrir. I know that's Fenrir. Because Fenrir is one of my favorite characters. And I thought this was where I was going to get to fight Titan, but it wasn't to be. He lived to fight another day. Indeed he did. So then after that, we go to the sands of Dalamil, and the next people to kick the bucket are four Waludian royalist pikemen who are killed in that bar when they pick a fight with Uncle Byron. <laughs> yeah. I loved Uncle Byron. Yeah, Uncle Byron's great. Such a great character. Yeah, I thought he was good. I thought he was necessary, to be honest, because once Sid died, Sid was kind of the comic relief. Mm -hmm. And you needed another person who had a lighter tone to him, and Uncle Byron fills that role. That soup could do with a touch more salt. Not long after that scene, Clive takes out a Domekian man of the rock and a group of royalist knights and soldiers when they're discovered hoarding crystals from the citizens. Mm -hmm. And then when Clive gets to Drake's Fang, that mother crystal, then there's a lot of Dalmechian soldiers in the tunnels who are found dead, having been killed, and are in the process of being cannibalized by the orc beastmen mm -hmm. who were brought there by the Waludian royalists. And at this point, we're still confused as to what that relationship is and why it's happening. Did the royalists bring them from Ash? And then, of course, it's there that you fight Hugo Kupka again at Drake's Fang, and he meets his end when he turns into Titan, and he's killed in this Michael Bay-style smackdown where Clive turns into Ifrit, and That he is leaves. the perfect description right there. A Michael Bay-style <laughs> smackdown. The guy who ruined Transformers. <laughs> and Ninja Turtles. And Ninja Turtles. Which is, like, personal for me, because I loved the Ninja Turtles. I love Ninja Turtles, too. I'm an 80s kid, right? But Transformers, that was my heart. And seeing what he did with that series... But that's exactly what happened in this fight. And then at a certain point, it just went like Ozzy off the rails type. <laughs> Couldn't figure out what was going on. And and like this giant Titans like, Whoa. and you're like this tiny little mouse, like, chap, chap, chap. Right. And so, you know, but you're victorious. You're the hero. You yeah, just... it was, it was insane. And you know what it reminded me of was the God of War series okay. on PlayStation. Yeah. Like you often are fighting these massive like giant bosses, like giant bosses. And like, yes, you're a demigod or whatever. But these things you're fighting are, like, humongous, yeah. right? And this is classic, like, at least recent yeah. Final Fantasy installments, right? And especially anything that involves Titan. Right. Because, because he's a Titan. Final Fantasy 15 has a giant... Yeah, he's a mountain, right. basically. He's a punching mountain. So the only way to defeat him is to be, like, a little 
creature that just uses your intellect to be able to strike him with your brain. It was an epic fight. It was crazy. But the death was pretty cool, too. So. And then he ends up, of course. A torso. He ends up like Typhon. Except petrified. Right. And not nearly as creepy looking. He ends up how Typhon started. And I think this is a point where I finally latched on to the fact that, oh, if they decide to just consume the ether raw, like they go into a super whatever. Yeah. But that's it. Once that ends, they're done. Right. He pulled out so many punches, literally and figuratively, using magic that in the end, his body just could not handle it. And he turns into pure petrification. But Clive... The way he finishes him off, remember how he like grows those arms? Mm-hmm. Remember, and he just like punches him. And I think it's in the final phase, and that's what ends up doing Kupka in. When I thought that was an interesting parallel, considering that Kupka had his human hands cut off, so it came right back around. Yep, sure did. The next deaths to happen are over in Buckland. Buckland! Near the Niagara Falls type mm-hmm. place. Clive, Jill, and Theo take out a pack of bandits who still Goots's traitor pass. And then once we make it through that gate to Twinside, then Jill and Clive are forced to then kill a bunch of dragoons. Your favorite, Ernest. Mm-hmm. You that! Identify yourself! We have to. On the way back to the clock tower during the start of their sort of Civil War mutiny type thing that's going on. Right. And then Bahamut then rises from the palace and he goes nuts for, at this point, a reason that isn't yet explained and we're completely confused about. Suddenly, Bahamut, he ends up lasering his own people, which to the gamer, we're going, well, wait a minute. Bahamut is Dion, who's like the only person in the empire who is concerned about the citizens. And now he's lasering everybody. And he ended up killing a lot of the residents of Twinside who hadn't previously been evacuated by the dragoons. I thought it was a nice courtesy that the dragoons actually started to evacuate people. So we didn't think everybody in the town dies, right? This is not what he wanted. Something's happened. And then after the epic triple icon battle that went into outer space Mm -hmm. with that awesome Dion music that I love, all three of the dominants of this outer space battle survive, of course. And then that gives Dion the chance as a person, not an icon, to then Lance young Olivier, who then fades into crystal dust because it turns out that he was some form of Ultima rather than human all this time. The demon that would tear our house apart is no more. Yeah, and the thing that I love about this, I said, I don't know what's going to happen, but if it's anything like Final Fantasy XIV before A Realm Reborn, where Bahamut goes nuts and tries to destroy everything, and he actually succeeds, and that's how you end up with A Realm Reborn. And I realize there's like a whole real-world backstory there where the original group that tried to build that Final Fantasy XIV just utterly failed at it, and they had to bring in the cavalry to fix it. It's the same cavalry who made sixteen, And there's a lot of similarities we'll have to talk about. It's like I always say, right? There are only so many straight-A students in the world. The majority of the world is B and C students. <laughs> Clearly, the first effort at fourteen got the D students. And they had to bring in the A-team to fix it. But that's why I was trying to draw the parallel. I I was like, I see them setting him up where like he's super angry because they make this kid Olivier the emperor. And when I saw it, I was like, yeah, I knew this was coming. And the thing is because, and I think we'll probably have an episode where we talk about Dion by himself. Oh, yeah. Dion gets his own episode for sure. But just who he is as a person and and watching them do this to him, you knew that that was going to result in an epic blowout of some kind. Like, you get Bahamut's character all wound up, 
that's not going to be a good day. Right. I probably should have seen it coming more so, but I had such faith in Dion as a character that I didn't think that he would ever do anything like that. So when Bahamut rises and starts lasering his own people, I was taken back because I didn't understand why it happened. And I thought that the way that they played out why he did that Mm -hmm. and showing us the flashback later was really effective and very interesting. Yeah, it was super awesome the way they did it. Obviously, a lot of people died as a result of his Mm -hmm. lasering of his... (laughs) environment but they are pissing him off and they are telling him horrible things insulting his mother your bloodline runs through the oriflam gutter from a whore who weighed her child's worth in gill people will tolerate a lot of things but you insult their mother something's going to happen you, you add it all together i realize there were other scenes where there was a lot of death like the very early one in phoenix gate But this was probably the one with the most, I think, collateral damage that I can think of, at least. I can't think of another one where so many people died in one place in such a small period of time. I think there's one other comparison, but it's the exact same location. This exact same location gets taken out completely later, right? (laughs) That's right. If you're in twin side, it just sucks to be you, man. Like, that is not the place you want to be in Final Fantasy 16. Well, I guess, or the entire continent of Valud. Right. Like that either one, too. one. Yeah. For a different reason. Right. Yep. But yeah, absolutely. Twin side. Yeah, that's right. That place right there is kind of forsaken. Yeah. <laughs> this Canver, game. too. Canver t- gets taken out. There's yeah. like a number of cities. That yeah. Fight the dust. There's a couple of them. But this one, yeah. like it was a massive city and just massive. And it was taken out by the one person trying to protect the most. Right. Yeah. The one who the people looked up to. Right. Yep. And that set up so many other things. Right. Because I remember yep. these people, I wouldn't say they worshipped him, but it was sort of like that. And all of a sudden, their god, so to speak, turned on them. That's a good point. Right? So they're wondering what's going on. So now it pivots the story yet again. And you as a participant in this are like, What is happening? What on earth is going on? (laughs) Yep. And then we see a flashback of what actually happened that caused Bahamut to go crazy. Basically, Dion apparently had tried to throw a lance at Olivier and... His father, Emperor Sylvester, jumped in front of it Mm -hmm. and ended up taking the fatal wound himself, which is what ultimately caused him to prime into Bahamut and go ape shizzle on Mm -hmm. his own city. And then you flash forward again, and the final one to die in this epic series of scenes is Annabella. You will not take me, Shadow! You will not take me! Who loses her mind and she slits her own throat in front of a living Joshua that she basically can't believe is real. And there's a lot we could say about this, which we'll probably have to save it for an Annabella episode, but super interesting stuff. I want to point out two things in this scene that have to do with the desk. So the part where Dion throws the spear and hits his father. Remember that the father is being poisoned. His mind is being poisoned by... Olivier slash Ultima. Annabella and Olivier. It is very reminiscent of Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings and how he's poisoning the king of Rohan. And gets him to the point where he's like this feeble old man on the throne underneath this poison, right? And of course, he gets free of it later. But the point is, in this case, he doesn't get free of it because he dies at the hand of his own son, which obviously causes Bahamut to go crazy and kill all those people. But Annabella's death, remember, of all the threads I've talked about that she's involved in, she ultimately dies at her own hand. Own hand. Yeah. There's definitely some significance there for sure. Oh, a lot. A whole lot. This is all just a dream. Just a bad dream. 
Annabella dies. And then back in Dalamil, there's a branded man and his broken cart, like still splattered out in mm-hmm. the middle of the town for some reason while everyone goes on with their lives. And I get the idea of, oh, that branded, we don't care about the bearers. But you'd think that like somebody would want to clean it up so like children wouldn't have to look at it. So it's kind of humorous to me that there's this splattered body out in the middle of the mm-hmm. town. But apparently he was killed by bandits and left there forever. And then on a number of occasions in that same area, Clive also takes out a bunch of bandits himself, like all around Dalamil. So a bunch of bandits lose their lives throughout the game, but especially in Dalamil. Then in Northreach, we actually hear about how their army captain was beheaded. We lost the captain this very morning. Apparently beheaded by one of Ultima's monsters, along with like swaths of villagers and soldiers who were killed. This is after the, what is it called, primogenesis, when the clouds get all... Yeah, primogenesis, yep. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and then just outside Northreach, the whole village of Moor is now overtaken by an ether flood, which Mm -hmm. I guess you could assume that its inhabitants were probably turned to Kashyyyk, which might include Bertrand, who is the dame's contact there, who Mm -hmm. was at the Chocobo stables, so... Lots of tragic stuff happening there. And then upon more travels, we find that also the village of Amber, which is that small village where the mayor asks us to leave because he doesn't want trouble. The Black Shields were invading. It's before you go to Aldil and see the bearers Yes, I remember. Yeah, Mm -hmm. so that whole village also is done in by an ether flood. The people of Amber might not have been the friendliest sorts. They didn't deserve this. So you can assume that most of its inhabitants are also turned to Kashyyyk, which is almost as good as dead, right? Right. And that's kind of a thing to point out, right? Because I think at this point in the story, this is where you start seeing the ether floods accelerating. Yes, like crazy. Because there were ether floods before this. Right. But this one is the one where they start accelerating, and it's after the primogenesis or whatever that thing is Ultima comes up with. So, again, all of this weaves in, right? Like, the deaths are important, right? Because they're starting to stack up. As a result of this thing he's doing, leading to his endgame or whatever you want to call it. It's showing that he has no regard for human life. And we find out a little bit more why later, but we don't yet know at this point what's going on. Exactly. So then I would say at this point, there's a lot of other side quests with more bucket kicking to be had. There's a hired heavy who's paid by some maddened merchant, they call him, to fool and rob a traitor. And he's killed by Mm -hmm. Clive. Clive also kills a pack of Domekian soldiers who are trying to rob a manservant. And then he also kills a pack of bandits in the Dragon's Airy for robbing a cart of a traveling trader. So lots of just destroying bad guys across the realm in these side quests. He also takes out a band of Black Shields outside Lost Wing. He takes out a group of Domekian renegades, giving Hovel and Rutherford trouble. Also a group of Imperial Guardsmen who are guarding Doris's former master, if you remember, the slave trader lady. Mm-hmm. And that's on a quest to save some bearers. So you've already pointed out a lot of areas where Clive is killing a lot of people. But in this section, at least, you start seeing it, the whole lot of, I don't know if you want to call it like vigilante justice type killings happening. Okay. And so there's two characters when I was playing this that came to mind immediately, right? So like one is the Punisher. This is not vengeance. No, not vengeance. His backstory is a little bit different, but he is vigilante justice. But the other one that tied a little bit closer to Clive, because now we've obviously known that he's Ifrit and Fire and all that, was Ghost Rider. Story goes that he'll be normal during the day, but at night, in the presence of evil, the rider takes over. Who was another one that oh. enacted vigilante justice? Granted, he had to do it at night, right? So, was Clive there a John the- Travolta version of that? It's Nicolas Cage. 
Oh, that's right. Nicholas right. Cage. Yeah. And I heard it was really bad. And I love it because you know the kind of movies <laughs> I like, right? So you like, like garbage movies. I love terrible. Like the worse the movie is, the more I love it. Oh man, so, I heard it was so bad. Any man who sells his soul for love has the power to change the world. Ghost Rider loved it. Hey, to each their own. Oh, Ghost Rider. You certainly keep strange bedfellows, Joshua. There's another side quest where a bunch of Cyril's colleagues, so remember the Undying who protect right. Joshua, right? Cyril's colleagues are killed by those fallen robot things, mm -hmm. and they were killed trying to distract the monsters from killing the Undying archaeologists who mm -hmm. were studying the ancient ruins, and then Clive goes and chews out Cyril. It does not further the cause of the Phoenix to have his loyal followers surrender their lives without good reason. There's also a wounded Demokin soldier just outside of Tabor who succumbs to his injuries after his whole troop turns a Kashyyyk and attacks him. Mm -hmm. Apparently an ether flood flooded their camp and then Clive has to take them out. And then there's some really interesting interactions with another soldier who survives who realizes that Clive was the killer of Hugo Kupka. Like Clive saves this guy and then the guy's like, oh, you're that guy, you must die. And Clive's like, I'm leaving now and you can find me later, but I got other things I gotta do. When your wounds have healed and your head has cooled, come and find me if you must. Though I hazard your life would be better spent in service of those who need it. And even the undying that you just brought up, right? Clive was so angry at this guy. Yeah. But the writers are playing you on both sides, right? Yep. Which is good writing. You're looking at the undying and they're a cult. Yep. Like no matter how you look at it. But they're a cult who saved one of our hero characters. So it's like. Right. They're a cult on the side of good if you want to look at, right. look at it that way. But they're still a cult, right? Right. And then this guy over here. I was there in Rosalith. When you killed my commander. He's still part of a cult, right? Hugo Koopa's cult, who's like, oh, you're going to save my life, but I have to kill you because of this cult. on So, like, again, the writers are just masterful at showing, like, cognitive dissonance. Because there's no just bad and no just good guys. I think it's obvious at this point that both of us love this game. Yeah. <laughs> but, like... When you dig really deep, like layers and layers and layers, the writers have just nailed it, right? I would agree with you. And I wouldn't say that for every Final Fantasy, to be honest with you. No, I wouldn't say that for most of them. I totally agree. The writing was taken up 10 notches in Final Fantasy 16 as compared to others. The only thing that I think compares to it may be Heaven's Word in Final Fantasy 14. Yeah, and I can't speak to that because I played 14, the original, mm -hmm. and then I played like a week or two of A Realm Reborn, spent so many years of my life playing 11, that when I finally stopped, I said, I'm never playing an MMO again. <laughs> yeah, because it takes up your whole life. It's too much time. I can't do There's it. There's nothing else you can do as a hobby. But I've heard nothing but great things about Heaven's Ward. Like everyone I know who plays it, it just loves it. Sir Emmerich is amazing. He's not as amazing as Ignis from 15, but I do love Sir Emmerich. One thing that I didn't know that you mentioned earlier was that who did that were the same ones that did 16. Yeah. It's Yoshi P. Now it makes sense why 14 is like so well loved. Our forebears fought not so that we could die, but that we might live. Again, since I can't play it, I can't comment on it, but 
in this game, they hit home runs over and over and over. They really did. And it was such a nice surprise. <laughs> it's almost like they went to Hollywood or, you know. Yeah, and got Western and Hollywood got, writers. Right. It totally felt that way. And not just with writing, like with cinematography, like camera angles and movements and such, and like the acting. So much of it was westernizing like the best of Western Hollywood. And that's what I think made this game so good. One of the things I was so impressed by, especially when you're talking about like these deaths, right? is this was the first time that I have ever felt like I was actually watching a movie yes. that I could interact with yes. as opposed to playing a game. Totally. And I've played games for over 30 years, right? And this was the first time I was like, yeah. we are so close. They're getting better and better. I think the next generation of gaming we're going to see is exactly that. It's a movie and you're a participant in it. I totally agree with you. And it's not just a movie. It's a series, right? It's just story, 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 and you get to interact and it's fantastic. Yeah. And that's why I think the deaths were so good in this because like people always die in games. People always die in movies, mm -hmm. right? And obviously there's like some sentimental attachment to it. But like, I feel like in this series, unlike other ones that I've played, the deaths actually told the story and drove the story. Yep. More so than I've seen in other things. They played a bigger role than they would in any other game other than maybe some game where like the point is to kill people. Right. But that doesn't make it necessarily a deep plot. And that's the difference between Final Fantasy is that the themes are so deep and the deaths are not just shallow. Right. Some of them are shallower than others. <laughs> but a lot of them mean a lot. And they're well done, I think, from a writing perspective. I can think of one better than you. The next person to die in the side quests is Taya's former mentor, who is suffering from like a fatal bout of the Crystal's Curse. And right. they speed up his death by basically an assisted suicide drug that Clive helps gather ingredients for, mm -hmm. which was interesting. They make a real point to show that that was the right thing to do. I think some gamers might disagree, maybe even myself included, it, but you know, I get it. I get why they did it, and I thought it was interesting. It's a tough one, right? Because this is another one where they're yeah. using death to make a point, and it's one of those where we as human beings generally, if we have a favorite pet and the vet tells us, like, look, they're just going to suffer. Yeah. You know, it's best to euthanize them. Most Which of I us just would did say, two weeks ago. Yeah, and I had to do it too, two years ago now terrible and that thing. was the first time that i had to do it so it was really struggling with that question of like is it my right to end a life this is exactly the plot point here like with humans we generally don't look at it the same way i just thought it was interesting that they took a stance on it well they had to because it is a controversial you know opinion they had to because think about the game itself right one of the overarching themes here and it becomes way more prevalent in the end is it's about choice right that's true a better world where men can live and die on their own terms. Clive and Sid said that multiple times. So here's a scenario where it is about this bearer's choice, right? So is it hypocritical to say, well, no, you can't do that. We can't let you have us euthanize you because we believe that's wrong. Or is it the entire thing we're fighting for is for a human's ability to choose how they live and choose how they die. And you're choosing to do this. Yeah. Right. So it all ties into the theme of choice. Again, right. The mark of a great writer in any of these things is, is to make everybody think. Do they make you question yeah. something about yourself? And uh, as a human, that's the hardest thing to do, because often you will see other people not related to even this, but just you'll see people on a path towards tragedy and you'll try to stop them over and over and over. But at a certain point, you have to accept like people are going to make their own choices. Yeah. Right. And there's nothing you can do. Right. In that case. So 
that's how JRPGs are. They make you suffer. Yeah. Ugh. You wouldn't tire. Surely. There must be something we can do for him. Sometimes an easy death is the greatest kindness we can offer. So then there's more side quest death after that one. There's even a side quest that ends up with a somewhat important character dying. Mm -hmm. When Theodore, Eloise's brother of the Crimson Caravans, he draws an Akashic dragon away from harming others, and then he ends up spending too much time in an ether flood because of it, resulting in him turning Akashic and slitting his own throat in front of his sister. So this was, I thought, one of the more interesting side quests, just because there's just a lot going on that was really interesting. And so anybody who's skipping the side quest, you're missing out on stuff like that. Take care of my sister. And it's not just that side quest that comes with some relatively important plot points. In another side quest, just about every able-bodied person in the entire village of Lost Wing is either killed by a coral-type creature in mm -hmm. this like revenge plot against the murder of Quentin's family, or they end up turning Akashic when the Aether Flood takes the town soon afterwards. And we'll have to do an entire Quentin episode and dissect this because mm -hmm. it was interesting and there's just so much to talk about that we don't have time for. But in that same storyline, we also hear how Quentin killed his family's murderer, so he does get his revenge. He wept and begged for mercy. And I cut him from ear to ear. This former, like, Lord Chief Justice of Sambrake, apparently, is who he kills. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't see that scene. We just hear Quentin retell it. Another plot driver. So there's so much there. All that I strove for is gone. Only emptiness remains. And then back on the main story track, all the leaders of the free cities of Canber, including the Domekian ministers and all of their guards, are killed by this single swipe of Odin's sword. <laughs> And then apparently everybody in the whole city of Old Canber is killed by these invading Akashic Walud royalist soldiers and mm -hmm. orcs who are working together. And we're starting to kind of get a sense of why at this point. I'm sorry, but we couldn't save them. Then Clive killed Sleepnare, but then he, mm -hmm. we find out he's not really dead because it turns out he's like this magical creation of Ultima or something. And then he ends up coming back in multiples and there's that fun scene outside of the ship. Phoenix's fiery fundament. Have you no normal enemies? And then the next people to die are the dudes in the ship jail along with Jill. Mm -hmm. Apparently they expire at her hands, presumptively for being maybe a little bit too forward for something. <laughs> yeah. That's quite a mess you've made. And then, of course, a bunch of Waludian royalist soldiers cash in their ships after attacking Clive on the ship during that mission to rescue Jill. Clive, how did you? I'll explain later. Then we go to Walud. And we find out that pretty much the entire continent, except for like one pregnant lady is dead. Edda, the pregnant lady. Right, right. Everybody was apparently killed or turned to Kashik before Clive even arrives. This is an entire continent. There's only two continents we spend time on. And so it's kind of a lot of people. And then the next person to die is Barnabas slash Odin, who was killed by Clive on this like religious fanatic psychosis kind of thing, which is super interesting. We'll do an episode mm -hmm. on Odin as well. <laughs> Don't tell me you are tired, Mythos. Then 
Clive and Joshua come across a wounded royalist soldier on the path in Walud. And it's technically a side quest, but it's really hard to miss because he's right there. He's somehow still alive, and then he dies, apparently succumbs to his injuries that he had sustained when the orcs that were traveling with his companions and him basically turn on the party and Mm -hmm. kill everybody, and he's the only one who survives. Because they're beastmen. I mean... You know, come on. And Beastmen, a lot of those same themes are in Final Fantasy fourteen mm-hmm. And 11. Yeah, oh, probably 11, too. I didn't play 11, and you didn't play 14. Yeah, it's the orcs, the goblins, and in 11, it's the quadovs, these turtles, sort of, that stand up. Oh, okay. Yeah, the Ninja Turtle ones, they exist in 14 as well. I wonder if they look similar. And then if you do other side quests in Walud, you also see the third chair of the Undying Man. He's called the third chair of the Undying. He's stabbed through the heart by a fallen robot thing in an attempt to protect the villagers in Mickelberg who basically pray themselves into Akashic form, which goes into the Odin story and the Ultima story. Duty to serve was everything to me, and I would not deny them that fulfillment. Then Clive and Joshua come across a lot of dead bodies strewn across the Waludian fortress. Apparently they were killed before we arrived by what we can assume was probably a behemoth run rampant because then we encounter the behemoth and take it out. When we fight, we fight together. And then if you go to the prison fortress in a side quest with Doris, Mm -hmm. you learn that all the bearers who were held captive there, including Doris's friend Chadwick, they're all fed to a Kuza beast, except for one living child. So lots of people dying there in that fortress as well. Mm-hmm. And then you also, in another side quest, find a registry of 10 bearer children names who apparently died in various brutal ways while being held at this Bodbach Conservatory. Mm-hmm. But that happened years earlier. So probably like 15, 20 years earlier. And then we're almost to the end. So by the time you leave Walud, there's apparently not a single living soul on the entire continent. At least it seems that way. Maybe some Akashic, maybe some orcs, but not really any humans. Humans, right. One by one, people went mad. Minds taken by the ether. And then from there, anyone remaining in the entire city of Twinside, which is the city that was taken out by Bahamut going crazy and lasering his own people, anyone left in that city at this point is then killed again, (laughs) when Ultima suddenly like rises that mother crystal from the earth underneath Mm -hmm. it and it rises into the sky and forms that floating origin place. He called it his Ark, so I'm assuming it's some sort of spaceship. like a Noah's Ark. Yeah. That's another episode we have to do is religious themes because they're all over the place in every Final Fantasy. Everywhere, yeah. And so the crystals are no more. And then in a side quest with Gab, you learn how his whole family was murdered when he was 10 years old, apparently including his baby sister, by Imperial soldiers. You don't really know why. You just know that they were all killed and he hid in the cellar and feels Mm -hmm. like he's a coward because of that. Without your resourcefulness, your courage, your determination, I don't know where we'd be. Then you get to the ending, which we have an entire episode about Mm -hmm. where we express all our opinions, but Dion dies in a heroic act to protect Joshua and Clive, fighting Ultima as Bahamut. It is done. And then Joshua dies when the Ultima caged in his chest, like, bursts free. I have always been proud to call you my shield. But now, it is the world that needs you. 
And then Ultima is killed by Clive in this epic series of fights. Relish this victory, knowing that you have but delayed the inevitable. And then finally, our hero Clive himself dies, apparently having succumbed to the crystal curse after destroying the final origin mother crystal heart and then surviving the fall from the sky into the ocean only to be washed up on a random beach, mm-hmm. cast one last spell and take his last breath. Yep. So all of that we cover in the ending episode. So if you want to know our opinions on... Right, because the last like four of those you mentioned are questionable. Yes. So... Yes, you could say that. They're in the deaths episode, but they're questionable. I think they're less questionable than Ernest does, but you can go back to the ending episode and find out what we think. For sure. And there are are many opinions on the ending of this game. Okay, so... That is every death in Final Fantasy 16. I might have missed like an Imperial soldier here or there. But yeah, that took a pretty decent amount of time. And I didn't even include non-story related fights with various thugs and soldiers across the game. But it's safe to say that a few people in this game didn't make it all the way to the end of the story. Yeah, and we didn't talk about all the monsters that died. Also the hunts. There's a lot of humans in the hunts that you have to kill as well. The hunts were crazy, some of them. But let's see. If you look at all the characters who died, who, let's say, are significant to the story in some way or significant to the game, maybe they have a name and or a voice. You have Biased. Biased. Archduke Elwyn, Sir Tyler, Lord Commander Murdoch, Avis, Tiamat, Garolf, Benedicta slash Garuda. Hannah Murdoch, Tatian the prostitute, and Yannick the soldier. They're in the main story, so I include them on this list. Mm-hmm. And then you have the people you talk to in side quests who were killed at the hideaway. So that would be like Kenneth, Gaylor, Bahumil, Martel, Glenn, Albin, Hugo Kupka's yellow jacket guy, the Rosarian Abbot, High Priest Imrian, Hugo Kupka himself, slash Titan, Olivier, Emperor Sylvester, Annabella, Theodore, Sleipnir, Sorta, the guys who lead the free cities, Barnabas slash Odin, Dion, Joshua, Ultima, and Clive. That's a lot of people dying. So that's 31 plus eight or so who were killed in the free city leaders. So they have voices. So I include them, which means 39, I would say somewhat significant characters who die in this game, including 12 main characters. So a dozen main characters die in Final Fantasy 16, although you could make a case that others belong or don't belong on these lists. But it's interesting because if you put all of the cutscenes together again, it totals around 28 hours, which would bring us to a death rate of about 1.4 significant deaths of characters per hour of this story. That's a lot. That's a whole lot. So I think it's obvious to say at this point that the deaths were not only were they plentiful, they were important. They were story drivers. They told yeah. stories in and of themselves. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely concur that death is a big part of this game. In theme, in story, in dialogue, in character development, in everything. I mean, it really is woven in. So if you're the kind of gamer who maybe doesn't like death in games, this may not be the game you were hoping for. Also, if you look at that list of 39, you have a range of different ways of dying, which is interesting. So like, let's see, crushed by a boulder, beheaded, burned alive, burned alive, ax in the face, 
slow motion axe in the face. Oh, there's a lot of them. Icon fights. A lot of sword-related ones. Stab, stab, stab. Killed by wolves. Axe in the face again. Lanced, two lanced. Slit their own throat. Twice, two people did that. Icon fights, killed by Odin's sword that entire room, and crystal curse. That's basically the ways these people died. And I feel totally ridiculous like saying this list out loud, but we can see that the game creators tried to diversify the way that people died to an extent. And I really don't know really what to do with all this information, except to say that I'm just really glad that my life comes with much better statistics. I will say that some of these deaths were portrayed in really interesting ways, like Annabella Mm -hmm. and Dion, I would even say, was interesting. Others, maybe more so for the sake of spectacle, like that slow motion axe death of Avis. I will say that while there is a lot of death and blood I am grateful that they didn't try to show like open wounds and such, like really <laughs> M rated. You know what I mean? Like, that would have been funny. Yeah. I mean, aside from Joshua, who I guess actually has an open wound that is shown, and there's right. a lot of blood there. We do see blood flying around everywhere in this game, but we typically don't see like where the blade meets the skin. Right. Right. During cutscenes, which makes it possible for people like me to actually digest this game. Without like wanting to puke all over the floor. So one of the recurring themes with deaths or things that kept coming back to my mind while I was playing this game, the scene where Joshua dies or supposedly dies, however you want to look at it, the fact that where he had imprisoned Ultima in his chest, it reminded me a lot of Iron Man. Oh, interesting. Right. And that's where Iron Man had his reactor that at first it was keeping him alive, but then it turned into just a power source for his thing. Right. This is also like another thing where the death drove a major plot point because it was actually a sacrifice. Mm -hmm. You could claim that Clive's was too, but Clive was already going to die, right? And theoretically, maybe Joshua was too, but this was a sacrifice of himself, giving the power to Clive to kind of close out the game. So I think that's the intent that the writers had. Somebody like me was like, I'm a little bit pragmatic with plot lines and storylines because I saw Joshua like encaging Ultima in his chest as being like, can't you encage him somewhere else? And this isn't really doing you any good because we're still running into Ultima throughout the whole game. So while the self-sacrifice motive was there, I felt like it was kind of cheapened by the fact that it wasn't effective. (laughs) Does that make sense? Like it did not do what he set about to do because Ultima's still running around. Yeah. And then once he, this Ultima portion or whatever wanted to break free, he broke free. Yeah. So well, I was like, well, good job, Joshua. That didn't do any good. He broke free because he, he was in his inner sanctum, right? Like had Joshua stayed away, because Ultima even had a line about that, right? But had Joshua stayed away, he wouldn't have been able to coalesce. And so this was what he thought was keeping Ultima caged so that he couldn't kill mainly Clive, because he knew that Ultima wanted Clive, right? He knew that much. So he was trying to protect his brother. But then he realized at a certain point that like he can't actually protect him because Ultima is a god. So the only way to protect his brother is actually to sacrifice himself in order to do that. And obviously Clive had a hard time dealing with that. But the point is like that was, it was an interesting how the death there was a self-sacrifice, right? Sort of like Dion's, right? If you look yeah. at it that way, it was just, again, using death as the plot point to kind of drive the story forward. Had that death not happened, and you could make that claim in several areas in the game, the story would not have been able to progress the way it did. 
There you have it. Yep. That's going to do it for this discussion, this episode of the Final Fantasy Files. We're anywhere you can find podcasts, including on YouTube, where you can see a video version that includes a lot of the clips that we're talking about. Yeah, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And in all those areas, leave us a review. We love to hear back from people if they love this. You can also tell us if you want to hear more about a certain topic or area. Yep. Otherwise, we do have a podcast web page that jolie will eventually splice in here somewhere so if you have a question or comment we'd love to read it Mm -hmm. might even say it on the air have a discussion around it and with that that's it walk tall my friends i think we can call this the ultima of the episode (laughs) such a dad joke you're such a dad now that was so bad (laughs) but it was good yeah as good as what is that movie with nicholas cage ghost rider oh that was a great movie so good all right (laughs) 